Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Happy New Year and welcome to our final episode of 2021. Last week was a special episode focusing on the prospects for the Republican Party in 2022. This week, we turn to the same subject for the Democratic Party. Somehow, in the wake of a failed assault on Democratic rule itself and the widespread embrace of an enormous lie and the complete resistance to all constructive legislation, all from the Republican Party, the Democratic Party finds itself on the cusp of 2022 in a whole and not a small one. The recent Republican win in the Virginia gubernatorial race has been taken widely as a harbinger of Democratic defeats in the 2022 midterms that would result in the capture of one or both houses of Congress by the Republicans. The party's problems go beyond the traditional structural difficulties for the party in power in a midterm election. President Biden in particular, and the party overall, are bearing the cost with voters, perhaps unfairly, for the continuing dislocation of life from COVID and the recent sharp rise in inflation. And the party is mired in widespread perceptions that it is heedless of the economy and focused entirely on social issues and intramural battles. Worse, Democrats have struggled to communicate effectively the signal legislative accomplishments that Biden and the party have achieved. The Republicans, meanwhile, are embracing the legacy of Trump and pursuing in plain view a strategy of disenfranchising Democratic voters in red states on bogus grounds of voter fraud and preparing a playbook of seizing power illegitimately if necessary. So the stakes feel higher than in a normal election because the apparently likely Democratic loss could plant the seeds for a further erosion of Democratic institutions. And to analyze how the party came to occupy this low terrain and chart what looks to be like a steep uphill path, we have an ideal group of commentators and strategists, and they are Stephanie Cutter, the founding partner of Precision, an integrated strategy and marketing agency. She served as the deputy campaign manager for President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012 and the chief program executive for the 2020 Democratic National Convention. She's also a former host of CNN's Crossfire, a frequent guest on cable and network shows. And this is her first visit to Talking Fed. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Joe Lockhart, one of the country's best known communications and public affairs professionals. He was the press secretary under President Clinton from 1998 to 2000 and before then to a number of other prominent officials, including Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis. He is a frequent contributor to CNN and the co-host of the Words Matter podcast and a repeat guest here on Talking Feds. Joe, thanks as always for being here. Glad to be here again, Harry. And Josh Marshall, an American journalist and blogger. He is the founder of, in my view, the peerless political blog, Talking Points Memo, which is the first and only blog to win the George Polk Award for Legal Reporting. Since 2018, he's hosted the Josh Marshall podcast. Josh, 
thank you very much for joining this conversation. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start here. There are any number of alarmist articles painting the party as severe underdogs in 2022. One, just to choose almost at random, but that I found fairly stunning, was the recent essay by Tom Edsel. Democrats shouldn't panic. They should go into shock, laying out a series of bleak polls and expert opinions. So let me start with your view of where things stand at this point in the cycle. Is it dismal? Is it just slightly uphill? Where do you think the party is at this juncture? There are two things that make 2022 look really pretty rough for Democrats. The first is midterms for a president. First midterms, never good. That's seasonality in politics. That's just kind of how it is. You add on to that redistricting, which has also become much more of a pattern in that process. You know, you had that with Barack Obama in 2010. You had a kind of a delayed version of that, but not dissimilar in 1994 for Bill Clinton. It's like, you know, it gets cold in the winter. That's just what happens. And then in the last few months, you have an additional fact, which is that the president is not popular. As long as the president was relatively popular, which he was until mid-late summer, there was a fighting chance that you can either buck those historical trends or make a good run at it. But both of them together are going to be super, super rough. There's just no getting around that. I would say I think it would be a consensus opinion that the odds were against the Democrats holding the House, even when the president was popular, just because the field is tilted against them. President's unpopular. It's kind of a blowout. Now, I have this funny thing with Tom Edsel. You know, I grew up when I was much younger reading his amazing books on American politics. I frequently feel like he has become almost a self-parody at this point. I mean, anything can happen to the Democrats, and it is always a disaster for the Democrats, no matter what. So I have all of this respect for Tom Edsel. Though I could have proffered other pieces that were of like mind. I'm using less florid language, but the Democrats are really behind the eight ball right now in these midterms. Now, I don't think we know where President Biden's popularity is going to be in 12 months. It remains a very fluid politics that we're in. And I think there is at least a reasonable chance that the economic picture and the COVID picture, which I think are the key drivers in this, not fundamental problems in the Democratic coalition and stuff like this. Look, the economy is really unsettled because of COVID. We've been in this for two years with COVID, and now we've got a big wave. Those are just bad things, and the president's in charge. So maybe those will be different, in which case I would say Democrats have a fighting chance in the House if there's big improvement on those two fronts. Otherwise, they'll get walloped, and that's just, you know, again, it's cold in the winter. And we should talk about the Senate as well. And a a quick defense to Tom Edsel, whom I interviewed about that very piece. He says he didn't choose the headline. Yeah. Though the pieces usually tend to match the headlines in, right. in, in Tom's case. Stephanie, Joe, where are we? Well, I agree with what Josh said. <laughs> I don't want to make light of it. It's a serious situation. But for those of us who have lived through this a couple of times, that there is a historical sway to these things. And for the first midterm, for any president, there are enormous headwinds. No matter how popular you are, that can abate the losses but there's still going to be losses. I also think that there is time to get the president's numbers up. 
We just passed the infrastructure bill. We have to work like hell to make sure people understand on the ground what it means for them. And we don't typically do a great job of that, but there is a tremendous amount of interest across the spectrum to try to localize as much as possible those communications so that people see the tangible benefits in their lives of passing that bill. I think that there's time for some of the economic headwinds to be abated. A lot of these numbers are going in the right direction. Gas prices, grocery prices. We just need to give that time and do what we need to do in terms of federal policies and regulatory policies to help that along. And it'll take a while for the American people to feel that, but we need to give that time. And then we need to work on our messaging and demonstrate that we're paying attention to what's happening on the ground. We know that prices are going up. We know that it's getting harder to make ends meet. We know it's frustrating when there's not enough servers at the local restaurant. We know that you're worried about your kids having had online school for a year and may have suffered academically or emotionally. These are the kinds of things that we need to be attuned to because that's what people are feeling. And policy-wise, we're in the right place for it. We have policies, we have agendas, we have a platform that we've stood for for many, many years on all of those issues. We just need to be disciplined about it and talk about it. And then finally, for the party writ large, we do need to stop fighting around the size of packages and understand where the political environment is. And if we want to get something passed, we need to be smart about it. And realize that if we're not smart about it, we'll never have another opportunity, (laughs) at least in the foreseeable future, to get anything passed. So I hope that that red light that's flashing in that regard, everybody's paying attention to and we can come together and get get things done. So uh, I'm going to start with the, the greatest Washington maxim, which is everything's been said that needs to be said, but nothing's been said by me yet. So I'm going to keep going. But I agree with everything, with one slight exception, and I I will come to that. Democrats historically obviously have a problem, but there are a number of variables here that we just have to keep an eye on that could turn for the Democrats or could turn seriously against them, making things worse. First is the economy. The most interesting thing about the economy is confidence is a lagging indicator. George Bush, in 1992, in the fourth quarter GDP, the economy was growing at almost 4%. Nobody knew that yet. Nobody knew it. That Nobody felt that yet. We have an economy right now that's growing at historic rates. People could feel that by election day and feel much better about where they are. COVID is the biggest variable. If COVID can get under control, supply chains helpful, people more back in the workforce, that could help Biden and, by extension, Democrats. COVID is the thing I think Democrats should all be most worried about because the single most important killer politically is kids not being able to go to school. I think that's why Terry McAuliffe lost in Virginia, and it will mean even more devastating losses. These are things that are largely out of control for Democrats. There are things within Democrats' control. One is the Republican Party remains the Trump Party. And no one who's running for office, except a half a dozen people, are going to run on a platform that Donald Trump is wrong. They're going to run on the platform of more Trumpism. We don't know what's going to happen with this January 6th committee. I'm pessimistic about their ability to have a political impact. 
but it is a variable in this. The final thing I'd say is I agree on the redistricting, but I think more important is voter suppression and voting rights. It's in the Democrats' hands to at least, and coming from the president, push for either an exemption to the filibuster or elimination of the filibuster. Again, I'm not optimistic about that happening, but I think that would have an impact. So that is something that's within their control. Josh, I disagree with you slightly on the idea that Biden is unpopular. I think even five years ago, 48%, which is, I think, the latest poll, the Ipsos poll, people would say that's terribly unpopular. We are so polarized right now that if he can hold Democrats and a fair amount of independents, that's popular by today's standards. So he's not there yet, but he's within shouting distance of being there. I agree with you. If the very recent number is a trend rather than just kind of random noise, I'm talking about where we've been, you know, last 10 weeks or so, where he's closer to 40 than 50. I suspect, like a lot of us, I had been going for a while thinking, all right, he's got Delta and Afghanistan that's holding him back. He's got some buoyancy here. It's going to come up and into October, November, just seems to be settling there. And that's, that's bad if it's settling there. I agree. And this is actually, and think this is part of what you're getting at. It has seemed to me just by kind of reading behind the polls that this fall has been in non-trivial measure because he's lost ground with Democrats. That should be recoverable. And that gets you, you know, maybe it doesn't get you to 52, but at least gets you to 48, which is a hell of a lot different from 42. So I agree with you. I don't see that as like, that can't change. Look, the Democrats own COVID now. They're in charge. That's just the reality. It's on the Democratic Party. And as you say, it makes its own rules. It rewrites its own script. The lag between public opinion and kind of hard economic data is one of these basic things in politics. But what I think is critical and goes back to your point about you need to get on the things you can control and hope for the best on things you can't control is Democrats need to be telling a story that assumes improvement on COVID and the economy. If those two things don't happen, none of it matters. They're going to get crushed in the midterms if we're still talking about like 10% inflation and all this kind of stuff. But I think the way that you can speed up to an extent things coming through changes in the economy actually translating into changes in the politics is you always need a story that people can put new data into. The danger I think that Democrats face right now, and in some ways the danger they had in 2010, is you just get a storyline that is built up. And the bad storyline for Democrats right now is Democrats came in, Biden means well, but he's old. It's too much for him. They're fighting amongst themselves. There's a bunch of them who believe in kind of weird stuff about random language policing that I can't even understand. Culture wars. Yeah, Yeah, culture wars that is just alien to people and seems totally unrelated to like price of gas and stuff like that. If that's the storyline, then some mild improvements in economic numbers just get sort of discounted. Like, okay, fine, but we know Biden's not up to it. So whatever happened is nothing to do with him. And I think what is key is to tell the story of Biden came in, he had everything against him. He had COVID, he had the economy, all this kind of stuff. He stuck with his plan. It's been bumpy. Republicans have done everything they can to hurt the country, to hurt him. But he stuck with his plan and now it's coming together. Economy's coming back. COVID's coming under control. 
We're finding out more and more about the terrible thing Trump and his people did on January 6th. If you're telling that story, then improving economic numbers, you can fit them in and they make sense. They start fleshing that out. And I think you need to get that story out. And I fear that there's just a lot of demoralization among Democrats and we're not hearing that story. I think the White House has just begun to figure this out, which is you have to draw a contrast. It can't just be what you're for. Harry, the last time we were on, I was talking about there's the politics of hope and that's failed. So what else is there? There's only one other thing, the politics of fear and fear of what the Republicans with a majority would do. And that opens a big field. That opens abortion rights. That opens judicial nominations. It goes on and on. And that contrast, I think, is difficult for Biden. I think he doesn't like to do it. And when he does do it, he doesn't do it that well. Stephanie's right that we need a message of all the things we've done. But I think the kicker on this has to be, and Republicans tried to stop it. Here are the five things we've done to make your life better. If you have a child that was in poverty that isn't in poverty any longer, that's because of the Democrats. And there's not a single Republican who voted for that. That is a harder message to deliver, but it is a message that should work. Everybody talks about Ronald Reagan is the best politician in history. I think he lost 50 seats in 1982. Right. On the single issue of Social Security, Obama's genius was being the smartest guy in the room, but being the smartest guy in the room by pointing out the dumbest person in the room, which was the Republicans and sort of pushing off them. Clinton recovered in 96 and 98 by pitting Democrats against Republicans and saying, I'm the only one who can do this. So there's lots of ways to do this. But without contrast, I I don't see how Democrats, I don't know what word was used before, slaughtered, annihilated. But (laughs) I was trying to make it as balanced as possible. (laughs) I I would associate myself with that harsh word. Let's not forget that the only thing less popular (laughs) than Democrats and Biden in some polls, other polls are even, are Republicans. So people are open to that argument. We just have to start making it. And the other point I want to make is that we know people have short memories and they don't want to litigate Trump over and over. We saw that in Virginia. None of that messaging stuck to Youngkin for a lot of reasons, but also that people don't want to keep litigating it. And reminding people what Democrats were handed on January 20th I think is important. We haven't solved COVID, but our businesses are open. Our schools are open. And that's a big change from where we were on January 20th. And making the argument that many of us have used many times that we've made progress. And we've made progress because we have people like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and others fighting for you. But our work is not done. And If we want to continue making progress, then we have to do X, Y, and Z. We have to make an argument for ourselves. And that argument does include some strong contrast of who's been standing in the way. Who would rather have prices go up so they get more political points rather than keeping their eye focused on you and helping you? I think there's an important distinction between Youngkin and the midterms that we have to remember. Youngkin never took a vote. He never voted for anything that hurt anyone. He never voted for anything that helped anyone. 
these Republicans, I guess, what do they have, 215, 214 seats? Almost all of them have voted with Trump all the way and praised Trump. So I think Trump does have a role in this. Whether we think he should or not, he's going to play a role because he's going to stick his foot in it. And secondly, they have a voting record. They have voted consistently against things that are popular with people. So I think this is district by district. Who runs a good campaign? Who runs good ads that really can move people and get people's attention? And again, it's challenging. It's uphill. It's all of those words. But it's not impossible. And I don't think anyone who looks at this or has been through this before honestly knows what they're talking about when they say this is over. There's just no way Democrats can win. There, there are several ways, but they're difficult. You all seem to be extolling the importance of drawing a contrast. And maybe this walks into Stephanie's relitigation buzzsaw, but there's also not simply the obstructionist record of Republicans in the last year, but the actual record of Trump on COVID in his last year, which at the time was spectacularly unpopular. Just in closing out this issue of where things stand, I I wanted to pick up on Stephanie's point that if these bad predictions come to pass, the Democrats may not have an opportunity to exercise power again in the foreseeable future. I wonder what all three of you think of the stakes here, whether they're elevated, whether in fact a loss in 22 is a harbinger of many years in the wilderness and how that in fact plays with the prospect that Republican rule here uniquely in the last 50 years might actually augur some kind of true damage to constitutional rule. I feel that same urgency, danger, all of that. I also remember all the books and articles after 2004 talking about the permanent Republican majority that was built on redistricting and money and blah, 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 blah. And then two years later, it was all turned on its head. We have very little ability to kind of really see far, far out into the future. And by far, far out, I mean like two to four years even. (laughs) especially in such an unsettled period. But there's certainly a lot of danger out there. I'm not saying like, yes, it's going to be great for Democrats two years later. I'm just saying that there's always a fine line between being candid with yourself and really facing the dangers one faces and just demoralizing yourself. And maybe exaggerating the present. It's very hard to not take the present as the harbinger of the future. Harry, I think we can't exaggerate the danger. I would argue that Republicans taking one house or two houses is going to have two immediate impacts. One is they're going to tie the president and the White House up and the agencies with investigation after investigation. And Stephanie remembers this. I certainly remember it. It preoccupies you. And it's very hard to stay on what you want to do. On the other hand, and I think we saw this with both Obama and Clinton, that having the party opposite in control of one branch of government can be politically important to you because all of a sudden the president doesn't own every problem. The position the Democrats are in right now is people say, well, we gave the Democrats the whole field. They've got everything and they still can't get it done. So Republicans take the House or or the Senate or both We're now sharing the pain. And if done right, and it's been done right again by the last two Democratic presidents, that can give the White House a political advantage. 
It's, again, something that they have to know how to do and be willing to do. And the, the key to Bill Clinton's survival was turning the investigative bent of the White House on its head, sort of making the compelling argument that you're being ignored here. They're not doing anything else but these investigations. While I want Democrats to win, because it's going to be even uglier if Republicans win, there may be an opportunity in that if the White House and Democrats can execute. And that's really, I think, the bigger question. I'm even more kind of bullish on that. I actually think, and this gets to the complexity of it, I would say the Democrats losing one or both houses actually increases Joe Biden's chances of being reelected. I mean, the pattern from Obama and Clinton's really, it's hard to run against no one, right? Incumbent election, it's really a referendum on you. And if you hold all the power, you can't spread any of that around. That notwithstanding, I still certainly hope they can hold on to both houses. But I will say something that's, I think, been rumbling beneath a lot of the points we've made here. There is this issue with Joe Biden, and it is in significant measure what helped get him elected in 2020, which is that want everybody to get along. We're all Americans here. Let's all be part of the solution. There's a lot laudable about that. As Joe says, you can also tell when he's at those moments of really kind of saying, you guys are the problem. You're bringing the country down, and I'm the only thing that's preventing that. His heart isn't quite in it. It doesn't come naturally to him. And I do think it is going to be really critical over the next year and the next three years. Can he find a way of making that politics work that is natural to him, that he can do? Because this abiding thing in politics, particularly among Democrats, that running on fear is kind of tawdry. It's cheap. Like maybe you can win, but that's a cheap way to win. And the reality is that's not true at all. There are things that are really, you should really be scared of that are really dangerous. And it's often those things that everybody can agree on. A whole swath of people can agree what Trump represents is really bad. So you run on that. There's nothing to be ashamed of in running on fear when there are things that are really worth being afraid of. Right. And there's no distance among all of these Republican incumbents between Trump and them. And there's a great track record. And I completely agree on the aversion to fear. But you don't have to go back that far. I cited 1982 before. Tip O'Neill destroyed Ronald Reagan and picked up 50 seats because he made the case that Social Security was the bedrock of American retirement security. And Ronald Reagan and the Republicans were going to take it away from you. Was that true? No, they weren't going to take it away from him. They were going to start limiting it and adjusting it in a way that was not good for people. But they had no plan to abolish it on the table. Another way to explain the difference between Democrats and Republicans is Democrats feel like they have to hold on to some semblance of the truth in making their argument. Republicans have abandoned that since at least 2010 with the Tea Party. They create a narrative that is based on the landscape they want it to be that's most advantageous, and it is not in any way attached to the truth. And until we find a way to defeat that, and we defeated it in 2020, because Trump was a unusually and spectacularly unpopular and off-the-grid politician. But when these members of Congress go back to their districts spewing the stuff that isn't true, that's very different. 
And I don't know that we have a plan to counter that. Just to go back, Josh mentioned the President Obama's re-election, President Clinton's re-election. It always helps when you have a foil. And of course, Democrats have a foil now in the Republican Party that is block-eating just about everything. Except we're in charge of government in every single aspect of it, with the exception of the Supreme Court. And if we lose the House, which I'm not wishing for, but if you look at history, it is likely that we will. And Republicans can't just sit on their hands. They have to be about something. They have to do something. And that could be investigations like Joe mentioned. But they have to have an agenda. They have to have votes. They have to vote on things. And President Biden won't stop pushing his agenda. But they're going to have to go on record against it and have a counter to it. And that makes it easier to run against. They are not going to make themselves a popular party if they take over the House. It's practically impossible because of their leadership and because of Trump's hold on them. So that works to Democrats' benefit. I say all this with the caveat that this does not make good government or good policies and it's not good for our democracy. But from brass tacks of electoral politics, it does make an argument for a Biden re-election easier. By the way, Talking Feds is doing two sort of year-end specials. So we have a parallel episode on the Republican Party. And if we're trying to analyze and solve a kind of political problem or juncture for the Democrats, they seem to have this existential problem of having to go with Trump, but it possibly having the seeds of breaking the party in two. And you're certainly right that if they have to drive the train, there's ditches on either side. I think Stephanie's exactly right about needing a foil. Right now, the Democrats foil, though, isn't the Republicans. It's Joe Manchin. And that's the problem. That's there's no way around that. Joe Manchin's the most powerful legislator uh, in the world right now. I mean, that's their actual foil, Joe. You think that's their political foil? People are attentive to this? I think if you talk to rank and file Democrats, they have the same amount of hostility, probably more for Joe Manchin than they do for Mitch McConnell, because it's Manchin who's holding all of this up and continues to play this cat and mouse game that's driving a lot of people, including myself, crazy as a watcher. Stephanie's exactly right. What are you running against? And if you're the voter, you say Democrats are running against Democrats and we don't need that. I think we've hovered around the general question, this whole discussion, to what extent we're talking about a communications problem and to what extent we're talking about a sort of organic problem. When you look at all the, not just the polls, but the opinions by the intelligentsia, what you hear again and again is voters perceive Democrats as focused on social issues, not the economy, and they don't give credit to Dems for economic gains. This goes a little bit to what you were beginning to say, Josh. Do you share that diagnosis that basically that one big perception problem for the party is that the people they need to get, the people who voted for Biden, but then voted for Young and in Virginia, see them as being preoccupied with things that don't have relevance to their daily lives? Sort of. I'm a little skeptical that it's this idea that Democrats are only talking about equity and pronouns and cultural issues. With the young can think, I mean, look, I don't underplay at all that it was a big and important loss, but you're talking about a really- Virginia. Yeah, Virginia, small motion. You can tell all sorts of stories here. 
I think what it is, is that one of the things that a lot of the electorate on their skepticism part of the ledger with Democrats is there's a lot of stuff that you talk about that I don't even quite understand what you're talking about. It doesn't really seem relevant to what's going on with me. And in the climate of, wow, everything still seems messed up. Food's expensive, gas is expensive, all this kind of stuff, that those kind of discontents kind of rise to the surface. I don't buy into that model in general because, frankly, it's really not the reality of the situation. It's not even the reality of what the polls are showing. I think it is a continuing issue that the Democrats have, that they have their center of gravity in the major urban areas and people with college educations, blah, 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 blah. And it gets them into some stuff that a lot of people find alien. That's just an issue they have. It's overstated, in my view, the way you put it. But all the negatives come to the fore when what you see every day is prices remaining high. And what you see on the news every day is Democrats arguing with each other. Joe's right. That's totally toxic when you feel like things are not good in the country and the people who are in charge are arguing with each other. And people also say they actually don't know what the Democrats stand for, which must drive the administration to distraction. Joe or Stephanie, do you think that's also an overstated criticism? I view it as a challenge. And I'm glad Stephanie let me go first because I'm going to praise some of her work. (laughs) But I think in the infrastructure debate, the president and Democrats were able to connect the benefits of a broad public policy shift with everyday life. And I think with Build Back Better, they've yet to do that. And I know that there's a new emphasis on it, and the election is a long way away. But as Stephanie alluded to earlier, Democrats fell into the trap of saying, I want it to be big. I want it to be super big. I want it to be bigger than Joe Manchin wants it or Mitch McConnell wants it. And it became inside baseball. And what got lost was the benefits to real people. Everything from universal pre-K to paid leave, the list goes on. And so it's a challenge for Democrats to connect those more closely, articulate those more closely, and then, as we've been talking about, make sure that everybody knows that every single Republican voted against it. Every single Republican said, you don't deserve an increase in the tax credit for family. But every single one of them voted for a big tax cut for the rich. Every single Republican voted against expanding child care in America, while every Democrat voted for it. They've just got to do that. And I think the White House role is to frame the issue, which is to really connect this not just as a social issue or a big package versus a small package. And we're probably nearing the end of time. I could go off on the media here, but I won't. Let's just say they haven't done their job intramural disputes that's much more interesting to them yeah yes yes and 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 we've helped them so there you go we'll leave it there they need a framework that democrats who are running in their congressional districts can then exploit and the president still has the biggest microphone in the country and there is plenty of time to do that but when we all come back from the holidays in january there's an urgency to shifting strategy and i think you see it already I think the White House was pretty open about it's time to draw a contrast. One of the great lines of James Bennett, who used to be the editorial page editor of New York and one of the finest journalists, he said, oftentimes campaigns or presidents have to wear their underwear on the outside of their pants so that people will get what they're doing. 
And that applies here. New Year's Day, I want to see the underpants. I do think, from a message perspective, we run into a trap every now and then. And Terry's comments in Virginia, and I know that's a microcosm of what's happening across the country. We can't overlearn too many lessons from Virginia that he doesn't want parents in the classroom. That sends a message to people that Democrats are better than them and want to dictate things to them. And every now and then we do fall into that trap. We just don't get what's going on in people's lives. The thing that really hurt Democrats in 2020 down ballot, we obviously had a, a great win at the presidential level, but we didn't win the Senate races we thought we were going to pick up. And we even lost some, is the defund the police. And that is one of those traps. You can't defund the police. There's a way to do this. I mean, Terry is a very old friend of mine, but that was a huge mistake. It was an even bigger mistake to double down on it the next day. A simpler way to say that is, yes, we want parents to have a role, but Republicans want to keep books out of the classroom. And that goes to, you know, 60% of the public that is worried. The Christmas cards of all of these people holding guns I thought the power of that completely undone by, I won't even remember her name, but she's running, I think, against Nancy Mace, who showed a picture of their kids holding a stack of books. There's a lesson there for us that I hope we learn. And you made this point, Josh. So much of this is district by district. And I got to say that the Republican ground game there, you, they're off the mark, it seems, more quickly than Democrats in a lot of small places with small election officials that could be pivotal in individual elections. I think that's part of the sort of scorecard lineup, too. Really great discussion. I wish we could go on. We just have a couple minutes left for our Talking Five feature. And today the question is, will anyone pose a serious challenge to the president for the presidential nomination in 2024? And if you can jam it in in five words, who would it be and why? <laughs> Those are two different questions. Sorry. Three questions, three questions. Yeah. Anyone want to start? Yeah, the answer is no. There's not going to be a challenge. I would say no, because there isn't anyone. Perfect five words. Happened so rarely. Harry, this is like the fifth time we've done this. So I've got <laughs> exactly. practice. But I think that answers the other question. Why would we want to talk about anyone challenging him? Because no one's in a position to do it. And I would say I certainly hope it's no, because it would pretty much guarantee we could lose the White House. I hope is no is four words. Stephanie, you have one word left. Well, I certainly hope it's no. Five on the money. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going ultra laconic. No. Okay, we are out of time for this episode. Thank you very much to Stephanie, Joe, and Josh. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And as you'll hear, we have a new level of Patreon coming at the beginning of the year 
that will include live question and answer sessions with me. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producer is Dustin Canals. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Happy holidays to everyone and all good and better things to you and yours in 2022.